six weeks, we are going to be watching this book kind of come to a close, and it's going to be closing with the signature movement of, of God inhabiting the tabernacle, taking up residence in the midst of his people. Everything about this book has been driving to this climactic moment of God with us, God with the children of Israel. And so we're, we're moving to that end. And we've learned throughout this book that Exodus is really not about Moses. It's really not about the children of Israel. It's really not about uh, what took place in Egypt. It doesn't take, that's not really the main push just about the book of Exodus. This book is about God. It's about his love for his people. It's about his deliverance of them from Egypt. It's about his supremacy over all the gods of Egypt, and it is about his covenantal love and relationship with his people. It's about God, and central to all of this covenant of God is his giving of the law, the, the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are really the summary of the way of living that reflects his character. So even the Ten Commandments are not really so much about us. They're really about Him, a reflection of, of, of purity. But last, a couple weeks ago, we looked at chapter 32. Israel's total dropping the ball. It was there that we saw Israel's greatest failure as they were worshiping a, a golden calf. And so it was after 40 days of Moses' absence that the children of Israel started worshiping. They succumbed to idolatry. They caved in. They pressured Aaron into making a golden calf for them, and, and they fell into false worship and immorality. They broke God's covenant. And the rapid departure from God was as fast as it was absolutely tragic. And there were enormous, con enormous consequences. People died, God was angry, and their journey to the promised land was in jeopardy. Chapter 33, last week, we, we looked at how God intercedes for the people, how Moses intercedes for the people of God. And he was begging God not to depart from them, not to depart from his people. We need your presence. Don't make us go up from here. Don't make us go to the promised land without you. We need you. Going to the land of milk and honey without you is a loss. The summary of this conversation was found in uh, Exodus 33, 15 to 16, and he said, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? God's presence is everything. That's why Exodus chapter 40 is amazing. It would hardly be an overstatement about the importance of this moment of God with us. Everything is on the line now. If God doesn't go with his people, it is all over. 
But the ball is ultimately in God's court. He has delivered them. He likes them, but he is not like them. Israel has rebelled, and the question is hanging in the air, what is going to happen next? What is God going to do? Which leads us to Exodus 34. So follow along with me. We're going to read verses 1 through 28. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up in the, the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me on the top of the mountain. For no one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all of the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hands two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping his steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And he, being God, said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people, I will do marvels such as, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you command you this morning or this, this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down the altars and break down their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when you whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take their daughters for your sons, and your daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. 
At the time appointed in the month of Abib, in the month of Abib, you came out of Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of the cow and the sheep, the firstborn of the donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb, or you shall not redeem it. Or if you shall not redeem it, it, redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. For six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the firstfruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at year's end. Three times in the year you shall, shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your boundary, borders. No one shall covet your land. When you go up to appear before the Lord, your God, three times before the, three times in a year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until morning. The best of the firstfruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil the, a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. He wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant the Ten Commandments. This is the word of the Lord. So what is God going to do? Our text tells us what God does, doesn't it? God gives them a second chance. New tablets are made. The, the covenant is renewed. God reiterates His love over His people. It's a stunning display grace of God to undeserving sinners. It's a powerful prelude of what is going to come in the New Testament when God extends His love and His kindness to His people through Jesus Christ. And why? Why does God do this? Why would a holy and awesome God choose to give a second chance to people who do not deserve it? Who break his covenant. Well, it's because this book and the story of history is not about Moses. It's not about Pharaoh. It's not about Egypt. And it's not about Israel. The story of the Bible and the story of history is about God. God gives second chances. God loves even though we do not deserve his love. So this final mini-series in Egypt will, or in Exodus, will end with God inhabiting, living in, dwelling amongst His people in the tabernacle. And this worship center will be set in the middle of the camp. And God's glory, that moment, is going to just take place where God's glory will so envelop the tabernacle. And the beauty of that picture is the simple fact that God's presence 
God's presence is completely undeserved. Completely undeserved. God's presence is powerful because He is not like us, but yet for some ununderstandable kind of reason, God loves us. He loves us. Psalm 78 is a record of the faithlessness of Israel and the faithfulness of God. Here's an example of, of that from the psalmist. Listen to it. But they flattered him with their tongues. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast towards him. They were not faithful to his covenant. But he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all of his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh. A wind that passes and does not come again. God is merciful to give people like you and me second chances. So verses 1 through 28 record the reestablishment of God's covenant with his people. And there are some very familiar themes that we can see throughout all of these verses. And I'm going to hit on them real quick. And there's nine of them. And there, if you listen carefully, these are going to be a, an echo of what we have already heard. First, we see right away in, in verse 1 that there are tablets. We've seen it already that there were tablets. Moses came down from the mountain the first time after spending time with God and God's wrath. He was angry because he knew what his children were doing. They were worshiping another God. And Moses appeased God and said, no, God, do not let your anger, your wrath burn against them. Moses comes down the mountain. He sees what's going on. Moses takes those Ten Commandments and breaks them. A picture of the brokenness that has taken place between God and his people. Here again, we see that God now says to Moses, you cut two tablets. First time, I cut them. This time, you cut them. And there's an emphasis some that, on, on, that there's, there's history here. But we also see in verses 2 through 4, the mountain again, Sinai. Moses is told to come up onto Mount Sinai to meet with God. He's, he's given, a, again, a mountain alone. And distance will be kept. Don't even let animals graze on the mountain. Exodus 19 gives similar instructions. And the point is here is simply to emphasize the difference between God and His holiness and the children of Israel. Verses 5 through 9, we see the presence of God. Moses goes up on the mountain, and what happens? God comes down. God comes down in a cloud, and he proclaims his, his name to Moses. And this, this is the way that God has been dealing with Israel and Moses from the very beginning. God's presence. You've, you've got the burning bush. You've got the protective cloud between the children of Israel and, and the armies of Pharaoh. You've got the cloud on the mountain with the first tablets and the cloud that descended on the tent of meeting outside of the camp. All to point to the 
personal presence of God. Now in this moment, God makes a very important statement about himself in verses 6 through 7. It, it, it seems like it's an unpacking of his name and his character. And Moses gives a powerful response in, in verses 8 and 9 that I think are the, probably the most important verses in this entire chapter, so we'll come back to them later. Verse 10, you see something about the nations. God talks to Moses about making his covenant with Israel, but we see once again that God is sending a message to the nations about himself. His dealing with Israel is a means to the end. Israel is not the end. God is using Israel as a means to share and display His glory, His beauty, His love to the nations. You see that in verse 10. All the people among whom you are so wherever you go, all those people shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So God's aim is to proclaim His name, His character throughout the whole earth. And Moses and Israel and Pharaoh and this covenant are all part of this plan. Then you see in verses 11 through 17 that there is to be no other gods. And did you notice how much time is spent on that? This is a reiteration and a re-reminder. We have not been out of this worshiping idol phase for too long. So I want to be clear, there is to be no other gods before me. In fact, what I'm going to do for you is a gracious thing. I am going to drive out all the nations and as I drive them out, you are to tear down all their worship places, destroy their idols. You do not enter into relationships or a covenant with them. You are in a covenantal relationship with me. You shall have no other gods before me. None. Period. Israel is to be marked as a nation with the one and true God. But then you see in verses 18 through 20 that they are a type of an exodus people. Kind of their, their moniker, their, their name, the who they are. God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt marked them for the rest of their lives. Marked them. And God reminds them about this and connects it to his ownership of them. They are to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And remember, remember this. All that open the womb are mine. They're mine. They belong to God. Why? Because he delivered them from bondage from Egypt. You are mine. Verses 21 through 24, we see a remembrance Israel was to have regular reminders of God's supremacy in their lives. One day a week, they were commanded, you rest. On top of that, they were specifically told, even in time and harvest time, you shall rest. Resting is to be a part of them. Why? Because it was during these... They would be tempted to push 
through and work nonstop, making their work ultimate instead of God ultimate. What's more, they were told to observe festivals throughout the year. Why? Because there was to be a rhythm in their life that served to be a reminder of who they are. Verses 25 and 26, you see that sacrifices were to be made. And God was very specific, according to my instructions. Not, not like the goats. You don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk, which is a reference. That's what the other nations do. Do not be like them but offer sacrifices according to the way that I have prescribed. And then in verses 27 to 28, you see God is a God who is, offers his provision. This text ends with an affirmation of Moses as the mediator for this renewed covenant. But it also highlights another 40 days and 40 nights which Moses was sustained in God's presence. It's really quick, to, easy to pass right over that, but for 40 days and 40 nights... He did not eat, which is also kind of a picture to our New Testament times, right? God sustaining Christ in the desert, just little pictures. So these last 40 days of Moses' absence, the previous time, led to absolute disaster. He was up the children rebelled, but this time God provides another opportunity. A second chance. So if you've been with us in this process through Exodus, you'll recognize all these themes, right? You, you, you've seen God's presence, His, His provision. You says there are to be no other gods time and time and time again. So these are incredibly familiar for us. But what is remarkable here is the simple fact that nothing is new. God's not recreating anything. There's nothing new here. This reinstatement of, a co of the covenant is simply a second chance. Even though Israel had sinned grievously against God, God offers an opportunity for reconciliation and forgiveness. His grace is extended, grace upon grace. And this is our God. And this is the point of chapter 34. The book of Exodus is designed to be a theological book set in a narrative context. It's communicating something beautiful and powerful about God. And we learn that God is a mercy-loving, grace-giving, covenant-renewing God. He is a God of second chances. And don't get me wrong here. God is still not like us. He's not compromising his character or his personality but he is deeply gracious as he is dangerously holy and this is the reason why we even gather today it is to rehearse God's grace it is to rehearse God's mercy it's to remind one another to teach our children to pass along the stories of God's mercy to celebrate the God of second chances Psalm 145 is just a great, great reminder. One generation shall commend your works 
to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty, on your glorious works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth your fame of abundant goodness and sing aloud of your righteousness. That's what we do on Sunday mornings. We are rehearsing and telling and reiterating and meditating, enjoying God's greatness. Then it ends with, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Does that sound familiar? The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. The Lord upholds all who are failing and raises up all who are bowed down. And this is a psalm that is sung congregationally. They sing of God's gracious work. This is a God of second chances. He holds you and sustains you. As this author in the psalm sung this song, so it has inspired generations following to sing other songs similar to this. This is, listen to uh, S. Trevor uh, Francis. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Wrote this hymn. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Rolling as mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is a current of thy love leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. Or Frederick Lehman's hymn, The Love of God. For those of you who saw it on Facebook, it was even sung by the Gaithers, which make me even older. How many of you, just curious, know the Gaithers? That puts me in a different category right there, too. But listen to this song. Could we with ink fill the ocean? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure. The saints and angels' song. This is the beauty of God's love. And it is to be a mark or a characteristic of the church that we are a people who have been given a second chance. Our pews and our homes should be open to those who need to meet the God of the second chance. And we are to be a people who have been graced by God despite our sinfulness and our rebellious ways. And this was even the, the Apostle Paul's vision for the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Listen to this. Or do you not know that the, unadult, sorry, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolater, nor uh, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, sexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunks, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul saying, this was you. And you know your story. But there's something different. You've had an encounter with the God of the second chances. And we're no different than the people of Israel. Their story is our story. And when we read Exodus, we see ourselves. But more importantly, when we read Exodus, we see the mercy and the grace of the main character, God. We see a God who is willing to give sinful people like you and me and Israel a second chance. But why? Why would God do this? The answer to why God would treat people this way is found in verses 6 through 8, a, a section that I kind of skipped over earlier so we can come back now. And this, these verses contain the self-description of God, and they will help us understand why God treats people the way that God does. Why does God give people a second chance? That, it, it's because of who He is. God is not acting out of character by giving second chances. It is because of his character that he is giving second chances. It is, in other words, a display of grace that is meant to say something about him. So what does God say about himself? Notice that verse 6 begins with a repetition of his name. The Lord. The Lord which is meant to God identifying himself. That's the way that he identified himself at the burning bush. And it is repeated either one for emphasis, just so you know. The Lord. Who? The Lord. But other commentators say that it is meant to say, I am expressing deep affection. I am your dear Yahweh. So what follows next is a list of attributes that characterize God, and these are, would be very important at this moment for Israel to hear. And it's equally critical for us to hear this morning. These attributes or characters of God is the sole basis upon which Israel would be delivered from their rebellion. Their hope did not depend on their performance for the future, thank God. And same for you. If, if your performance is what God is going to be saving you, based, based on your performance, God's going to be saving you because of your performance, you're hopeless. But he saves based on his own character. So listen to what it says. Merciful. He is compassionate. And he genuinely cares for his people. He's just not this nebulous, grandfatherly-like figure sitting up on a mountaintop like Zeus. No, he is a merciful, compassionate, and genuinely concerned God for his people. He is gracious. He does things for his people that they do not deserve, and he does things beyond what would be expected. 
He took them back. And I'm going to continue to save you. And I'm going to prepare a way for you. I'm going to drive out this. I am gracious. You do not deserve this. I'm going to just pour it out for you. But he's also slow to anger. Thank God. He is patient with his people's waywardness and, and their failures. He's abounding in steadfast love. God is great in his covenantal love. And he is loyal to his in spite of their lack of loyalty to him. He's abounding in love so much that it covers over our failures. I continue to love you. But he's also abounding in, in faithfulness. He is equally full of truth such that he can be trusted unequivocally and eternally. I will always be faithful. Always. You can take my word for it, is what God's saying. And he's also keeping steadfast love for thousands. So God will continue his love indefinitely. It's the infinity symbol. For thousands, it's this picture of, I'm going to keep on loving and keep on loving. You may stop. You may have abrupt stops here and there and restart later. But for me, I am going to love and love and love and love and love. And on top of that, it says that he's going to be forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. God eagerly, you got to hear this, because some of you have a hard time with grace and forgiveness, and you'd rather just kind of carry it around with you. God eagerly forgives all kinds of sin. You got that in 1 Corinthians 6? Where Paul said, you know, these kind of people do not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Some of which you, you guys are. But God washed you. Just He's cleansing you. You are forgiven. And, and he desires to greatly forgive you. And this flows from the very essence of his character. But then it ends with this visiting iniquity. God's great grace is balanced with great justice. Great grace is balanced with great justice. He forgives, yet he does not let the guilty get away without penalty. So let me say a word or two about what this text actually means because there are there are some who have taken it to mean that God punishes the children and their children and their children's children for the sins of their great-great-great-grandfathers, right? Man, there's this generational curse kind of thing. Since my great-grandfather did this, I, I'm still reaping the curses of this. Have you heard that before? Man, I, I am cursed because my grandfather was uh, an adulterer, he was a slaveholder, he was a this, he was a dirty old man, so therefore, I, I'm still reaping the curse of that. And I've talked to people, even some in my own family, who, who believe that they're still dealing with the curses by God because of the, the sins of family members. Rather, what this text is, is describing is God's just punishment of sin in 
each new generation if, hear that, if the sin continues to be repeated. You are not carrying your grandfather's or your great-grandfather's sin unless you are repeating it. The message here is that God is going to deal consistently with sin in each generation. God is going to deal consistently with sin in each new generation. If your forefathers were punished for their sin, hear this, you will be punished as well if you follow their example. It may be very true that family trees have similar patterns of sinful behavior. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You may be able to look back and you can look at your, your parents, maybe even your own lives, your life, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, if you had the pleasure of knowing them. And, and you can look back and see patterns of infidelity. You can see patterns of substance abuse. You can see patterns of same-sex attraction. You can see patterns of violent behavior. You can see patterns of suicide in your family history. And these, these are not signs of the punishment of God indicating that there's no hope. These are historical patterns that are part of the brokenness of our world. You are not hopelessly cursed by God because of the sins of others. The promise here is one, God will treat you justly for your sins. And two, He is a God of second chances. You have to have both. He is a God full of justice, and He's also a God full of mercy all rooted in his character. Grace is based upon who God is. And that is why Moses makes the following statement in, in verse 9. He said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for an inheritance. God's presence among his people is based upon God himself. They are a stiff-necked people, but he still loved them. They were sinful to their very core, and yet he pardoned them. They were rebellious, and we saw it. But God took them as his inheritance. This is the way God acts. He is a God of second chances. And this, friends, applies to everyone. We all have broken our relationship with God through our sinful attitudes, our sinful words, our sinful uh, thoughts and actions. And the good news of the Bible is that God, through Christ Jesus, is able to make you a new person from the inside out. That's the good news. And Jesus calls this being what? Anybody? Born again. 
This is being born again. And it means that you realize that you are a sinner and that you are in need of a Savior. It means that you know that you need dire need of God's mercy. It is asking God to forgive you and to invite Christ to be your Lord and your Savior. But here's the thing. We get in the way, don't we? We let our past and our, our failures stand in the way and we say, there is no way, there's no way that such a kind, gracious, loving, merciful God would love me. Does he know about my past? And the answer is, yeah. The enemy, Satan, would love to hold you back. He really would. Trying to convince you that you could never be forgiven. That you, you are not, of all people on the earth, you are not worthy. That's why he's called the deceiver. The fact of the matter is that even being born again doesn't depend on you or your failures. Being born again depends totally on God and his grace. So in spite of your brokenness, in spite of your failures, God says, you're my inheritance. You are mine. God knows you better than you know yourself. Thank God. He knows your failures better than you can, than you can even possibly imagine. And yet he loves you. So even the hidden sins that you have here this morning that you really don't want anybody else to know, God knows them. Every one of them. And yet, if you are in Christ, He loves you. And that's the scandal of the gospel, right? He loves you not because you are worthy but because he is so wonderful. So this morning, no matter where you are in your walk, the call this morning from Exodus 34, 1 through 28 is, come to him. It's come back to him. So whether it's come to him for the first time and responding to his grace and his mercy, you recognizing I am sinful, I'm broken, and I am on my own, and I need to cling to someone else who is more powerful, more more giving than me. I need a savior. Come to him. Confess your sins, for he is faithful and just to forgive you from all your unrighteousness, all your sins, all your shortcomings. He is faithful. He's abounding in faithfulness, right? But it's also for those who are in Christ. We rehearse week in and week out. We're called into God's presence. We confess our sins and we receive an assurance of pardon. Therefore, may the peace of Christ be with you and you say, and also with you. We have this peace and this assurance and we, we come back to him. After week after week, day after day, moment by moment, come back to Christ. Clinging to Him. Oh, the love of God. How rich and pure. How measureless and strong. It 
shall forever endure. So his, he is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Friends, he is the God of second chances. Amen? Let's pray.